Ask me anything, 16. Let's jump in. What are your thoughts about picking a career or about picking areas of academic study that lead to viable careers? Well, this is a hard one because my career has taken turns which I could not have foreseen. I'm spending a lot of time podcasting and developing content for an app. And if you had told me I would be doing any of these things 15 years ago, I would have said, what is a podcast and what is an app? They didn't exist. So how to prepare for a future wherein the career one is likely to have may have not been invented yet. Right, that is the fundamental question. I think there are a few generic good ideas here. One is that staying connected to developments in technology is probably a good thing, right? So the future will be owned by people who really understand what technology is allowing us to do and how it's changing the landscape. So time spent learning to use new digital tools I think is rarely wasted, right, as a generic matter. And I would say, too, that the careers that seem least likely to be automated anytime soon are those that entail human creativity, human taste, human insight. Uh, It's not to say that automation won't intrude even there, but those will be some of the last areas. So if you're trying to find a job that will age well in the presence of intelligent machines, I think you want a job that does not entail the rote manipulation of data or anything else. You don't want repetitive tasks that will admit of an algorithmic solution anytime soon. You want to be doing something that people do best or that people will want done by other people for a very long time. And again, it's hard to make strong predictions here, but and there are some paradoxes. I think it is true to say, as many people have, that the job of a nurse is probably more secure than the job of a doctor. Certainly most doctors. The job of a radiologist, the job of an oncologist, even the job of a surgeon seems more susceptible to automation than the job of a frontline caregiver. You know, and that's surprising. I think lawyers and accountants and There are many other white-collar jobs that will be automated away before seemingly more menial jobs will be. Obviously, we will want to remain in relationship to other people. So careers that give primacy to relationships, being a psychotherapist or a coach seems to me to give much more primacy to the relationship than being an oncologist does. With an oncologist, you just want the right answer. And if you tell me that IBM has a new piece of software that can detect cancer five times better than any oncologist can, well, then the job of an oncologist at most thereafter is to give us access to that software and to facilitate that process. So a lot of these jobs are going to change, if not disappear entirely. And if I were advising someone just entering college now, I would say stay close to science, stay close to technology, and stay close to 
human creativity. So the humanities, I think, can also age well in this circumstance. We want good books, good movies, good art, good music. Right? I don't think that's going to go away. And I think our appetite to have machines produce these products will be slow to emerge. Right? Do you really want a novel written by an artificial intelligence? I'm not so sure. So I don't know if that answers the question, but there were some general principles in there. And I think there's no doubt it will be interesting. Actually, there was another question in this vein about whether I would recommend a degree in philosophy to anyone at this point. And the assumption seemed to be that I wouldn't because there's not a direct line to the job market. But actually, I think philosophy is a great undergraduate major. It forces you to think clearly, to argue well, to write well. And the people who go into this area are as smart as the people who go into any other field in college. There's a fair amount of data on that, testing the people who go into math and physics and other fields. Philosophy is right up there with math and physics. So you're surrounded by smart people who are engaged with ideas. And these ideas are as important as you want them to be. I mean, these ideas can be about existential risk or criminal justice or medical ethics or any, they can be as relevant and as morally salient as you want. So, yeah, I do recommend it as a major. I don't recommend that people take it in the traditional academic direction. I don't, I don't think there's that much room for professors of philosophy. So I think if you are going to major in philosophy, you should think of your career prospects in a broader way. But I think it's a great major. Recently, you mentioned that Noam Chomsky has expressed interest in debating you. Can you provide an update on whether this is happening? Well, unfortunately, it's not happening. I don't know how else to put this, but Chomsky is a very strange man. I don't know if he's always been this strange or if I am experiencing some age-related degeneration of his civility and reasonableness, but he doesn't appear to be dealing with a full deck socially. I encountered this, of course, in this infamous email exchange we had, and I'll tell you about the genesis of this final misunderstanding. One of Chomsky's students, who really appears to be a beloved protege of his, someone who still speaks with him weekly, was trying to arrange a meeting between us and wanted to moderate it. And he showed every sign of being able to do this. And these machinations went on for more than a year, where he was communicating with me and communicating with Chomsky, and we tried to set something up, but then schedules changed. Chomsky, I believe, moved to Arizona. There was a lot of back and forth about this. And when it seemed that something actually had been agreed to, when it was really on the verge of being scheduled, I said something fairly tentative on my podcast on the order of, well, it seems like there's a movement afoot to get me and Noam Chomsky together to do a podcast. Uh, I'll let you know if and when that's happening. It was by no means a fait accompli, but at that point, there had been enough interest expressed and enough of an effort to actually schedule it that it seemed like the other shoe was going to drop 
in fairly short order. So I said something tentative about it in a housekeeping. And then somebody heard that and emailed Chomsky and said, Sam Harris says that you agreed to go on his podcast. Is there any truth to that? And Chomsky apparently responded to this person with something like, I don't know what he's talking about. He probably just made it up. So I don't know what to make of that. I have now at this point seen abundant evidence of how strangely Chomsky behaves by email when people ping him with something. Many people misinterpreted the the origin of my unhappy collision with him as it being a matter of my intruding upon the great man's time in such a way that he had no patience for because he can't be bothered to debate people by email. I can assure you that nothing could be further from the truth. Several readers have sent me their own email exchanges with Chomsky that run to many more pages than mine. The great man has apparently many hours in his day where he is happy to bark at people by email with even less civility than he showed in my exchange with him. It's just completely bizarre behavior. So I I don't know what to make of it, but I can tell you that a podcast with Noam Chomsky is not in the cards. Who's your favorite thinker who you mostly disagree with? Hmm, good question. Well, the example that comes to mind, which I've spoken and written about before, is, is certainly the clearest one in this vein, and that's Richard Rorty. Uh, Rorty was somebody who I studied with at Stanford, and he's, he's often considered the father of, of modern pragmatism in philosophy. And I completely disagreed with his core philosophy, but found him to be fantastic company on every other point, right? So I just argued with him endlessly, but found it incredibly useful and uh, refining of my own views. Actually, someone else also comes to mind here, Terence McKenna, right? Terence is perhaps the most entertaining speaker I can think of. Just an absolutely beautiful mind. Uh, there's, there are now endless hours of him in audio and video on YouTube. And I highly recommend you you listen to him. He's really the best poet that the psychedelic experience has ever had. I actually met him once, but never had a conversation with him. I was, there's actually a video online, which I discovered not long ago, which I was amused to realize. I was in the room when the video was shot with Terrence, standing really just off camera, but there's no evidence that he and I ever met. He was interviewing Ramdas in Prague in 1992 at a conference. Um, and he, Terence, and his team produced this video interview. And I was in the room for that interview. Uh, I, and I also went to a few of his lectures. I asked a question or two in the Q&A. So I met him in a sense, but never hung out with him. And then he died in the year 2000, I think, long before his time. So Terence had one of the most beautiful minds I can think of, but he happened to be spectacularly wrong about many things, and his core thesis certainly has not borne out well at all. And were it the product of any other mind, I would judge it to be a sign of mental illness, right? His core idea was that he had discovered that 
time itself has a kind of structure that can be measured in terms of what he calls novelty, new and surprising and consequential changes in human events could be graphed in terms of their novelty. And he had hit upon this structure by doing some mathematical manipulation of the I Ching. Right? I think he farmed out some of this mathematical work to a professional mathematician. But in any case, he, he came to believe he was in possession of a lens through which to look at human history and predict the future. And what he predicted was that history itself would end on December 22nd, 2012, right? As it turns out, the same day or thereabouts when the Mayan calendar ends. Uh, I think he took this as further confirmation of his insight. Now, these ideas are nuts. The evidence adduced for them is also nuts. And it's a testament to how interesting a mind Terence had that I can still recommend that you listen to him rather than dismiss him as a total crackpot. He was an absolutely brilliant man whose intellectual life was organized around some fairly crazy ideas. And unfortunately, he didn't live to see the disconfirmation of his most cherished idea, which was this time wave thesis. Had he lived 12 more years or so, that would have been a very interesting encounter with empirical reality, because nothing happened on December 22nd, 2012. Although, as Eric Weinstein recently pointed out to me at one of our events, I may be putting an undue emphasis on this part of the multiverse. Right? If the multiverse thesis is true, or the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is true, well, there's certainly some place where Terence was proven right, or many such places. Anyway, check him out on YouTube. He had an absolutely brilliant mind, and it flowed around some very strange and apparently immovable silly ideas. What exactly were the, quote, pointing out instructions you got from Tuku Ergen Rinpoche that you wrote about in Waking Up and described as, quote, the most important thing you ever learned from another human being? Well, that is something that I'm trying to communicate in my own way in my meditation app. It would be a, a violation of the tradition of Dzogchen for me to simply reiterate verbatim what Tukurgan tended to say in those pointed out instructions. But in my own way, I'm trying to point to the same experience. And that's the whole purpose of my meditation app. That is something that you need to get over many days and weeks of guided meditations and lessons. All I can say is I'm attempting to deliver the goods. I'm a middle-aged man and have never had children. I never wanted them. But people constantly tell me that without kids, my life has no meaning, as no testament to my existence will survive my death. I respond that I could write a best-selling book or create a vaccine, and those accomplishments would serve as a kind of immortality project, which would be far superior to mere procreation. But I haven't done any of those things, and probably never will. So where does that leave me? Where's the value in another book read, another meal consumed? 
Does one need to procreate to gain insight into the profound nature of the human condition? Do I have to have kids for my existence to matter? Uh, Well, the short answer is no. And some of the most self-actualized people I've ever met haven't had kids, right? So, and there's some very unhappy parents, no doubt. So there's a perfect association here. There is no direct connection between having kids and being wise and deeply contented with one's life. And one can be wise and experience deep contentment without kids. I mean, most of us who are parents do experience a new kind of love in the presence of our kids. And that's fairly amazing. But I would never say that you can't live a fulfilling life without that. And as for life being justified by having done something that you will be remembered by, right? making your mark on the future, that too is a losing game for virtually everyone. Right? There's almost no one you could name alive today who will be remembered in a thousand years. I mean, perhaps there are a couple people who I could think of where I would confidently say that if anyone's around, their names will still be spoken of. But maybe not even them. That can't be the measure of a life well lived. And in fact, many of these people aren't even especially happy, right? So living a good life is something else. Right. Living a good life is being truly at peace more and more of the time. Having a mind that is able to connect with other people, caring about other people, whether they're your kids or not, doing interesting and beautiful things. There need not be a point to life beyond the well being you can experience in each moment, either alone or in the presence of other people. Recall what it's like to look at a beautiful sky filled with cumulus clouds, right? Fluffy clouds passing by in the distance. Either you have a mind that can find that sight deeply satisfying, or you have a mind encumbered by other things where you don't have the free attention to take any pleasure in that beauty, right? So, If you have that sort of mind, you have to find some way to get past that. You have to put your life in order, your thoughts in order, or cut through the whole thing with mindfulness, with an ability to actually pay attention, so that your attention is then available to just see how beautiful the clouds are. But then looking at those clouds, what's the point of any of that? The clouds themselves are going to disappear. The sun is going to set. You are going to move on to other things. What's the point of that experience? It's the wrong question. Okay, that's a thought arising in this moment that you were taken in by. Right? The voice in your head is incredibly boring in the end. What's the point of any of this? That little man in your head doesn't exist. And the one that seems to exist is not worth listening to most of the time. What's the point? That guy is an asshole. You have to recognize the superficiality 
of that tiny nihilistic philosopher in your head. Look at the clouds. They are shockingly beautiful. The act of doing that answers these questions before they arise. And this can be true in every other moment in your life. You don't need bad philosophy if you can actually pay attention to the character of consciousness in each moment. And paying attention is the antidote to those sorts of thoughts. You don't need to fight those thoughts with other thoughts. Your mind is fickle in this way. Right? There's a committee of bad philosophers in there. So I would urge you to lose patience with nihilism. Forget about the distant future. The virtue of having kids is not that they will speak your name down to the ninth generation. They won't. Do you know who your great-great-grandfather was? I don't. The amazing thing about having kids is you get to love them in all these different stages of their lives. You find yourself in a totally unique relationship, but there are many relationships you can have in this life. Anyway, I hope that didn't come off as a rant, but the whole premise of the question was upside down and backwards. And the people who are constantly telling you that your life has no meaning without kids find better company than that. They say the unexamined life is not worth living, but is this really true? I spend hours every day thinking about and sometimes agonizing over, quote, deep philosophical questions and ethical and political problems, most of which I have zero control over, and I experience real suffering as a result. Yet my girlfriend is completely oblivious to all these concerns, and she's generally happy and content with the world as she understands it. What should I make of this? Am I overthinking it as usual? Uh, no, I don't think you're overthinking it. I think uh, there's a balance to be struck here. I think the notion that ignorance is bliss can be taken way too far. I think remaining engaged with current events to some degree is important. I think we should all take some ethical responsibility for engaging with our world politically and intellectually. I personally don't envy someone who's totally oblivious to what's going on and who may nonetheless be happy. But you need to find a balance. There is a ditch you don't want to land in on the other side of the road. To spend a lot of time agonizing over problems that you can do nothing about, that seems unproductive. I can't generically tell you where the sweet spot is, and it may change from time to time. There's definitely a time to go sit a meditation retreat or go on vacation and not even be aware of what's happening in the world because you have other things to do. But generally speaking, there has to be a balance to be found here. And I try to be informed, but not destabilized by what I'm paying attention to. Because my goal is to actually find something useful to contribute. And if you're driven to the brink of madness by how much suffering there is in the world, right, you're of no use to anybody. You do have to become a kind of connoisseur of positive mental states. You, you have to be able to differentiate compassion from its counterfeits. And one of its counterfeits is empathy of the sort that is synonymous with emotional contagion. So when you're with someone who's depressed, 
you get depressed. When you see somebody sad, you get sad, right? That's not especially useful in the end. It's not that you want to be a Vulcan and feel nothing, but compassion really is primarily the desire to help. And those kinds of distinctions are worth keeping in view. And again, mindfulness is a kind of master variable here, because if you can't notice what the effects are in your mind of using your attention in various ways, well, then you have no way to navigate. In your podcast episode, The Most Powerful Clown, you talk about why Trump got elected and put the inability of the left to speak honestly about Islam, terror, and immigration squarely in the center of the argument. How do you see the election of Trump now that a few years have gone by? Do you still draw the same conclusions as to why he got elected? Have you come to any new insights? I think I've always said that his election was overdetermined. Right? There were many reasons why he got elected. I mean, one reason is just, if, just how bad a candidate Hillary Clinton was. Most of the people who were voting for her didn't really like her or trust her all that much. So that variable alone played an enormous role. But I would add a point that I, I haven't emphasized much in my talking about the rise of Trump, which is that so many people in our society have felt left out of the cultural and economic changes that are upon us. And these are being driven by information technology and globalization. So insofar as we're living in a global digital economy and millions of people in America are being left out of that and trade and outsourcing and automation and immigration are components of this, that dissatisfaction, which is totally understandable, got organized around this protest vote for Trump. And many of the people who thrill to the sight of him undermining our institutions, whether it's the media or the intelligence services or the State Department or traditional alliances with allies, right? The people who just want to burn it all down, many of them are motivated by this sense that they don't have skin in the game anymore. The status quo isn't working for them. And I get that, and yet I think the outcome is truly appalling. Anyway, so not, nothing really has changed there, but there definitely is that further point to emphasize. Teachers like Eckhart Tolle have said things like, let go of your past, while Jordan Peterson and others make the recommendation that you should go through your life with a fine-tooth comb to become a better person. I know you're not a psychologist, but could you please share your opinion on which approach you feel is more beneficial, especially to a person who struggles with depression? Okay, well, actually, these are not incompatible injunctions. So to take the Eckhart Tolle more meditative recommendation to let go of your past. Yeah, it's true that the mechanism of much of your mental suffering is born of being lost in thought about the past or the future. So to be able to ground your attention in the present is a kind of skeleton key that unlocks virtually every door here. But the admonishment, which sounds like Peterson is apt to give to fully understand your past, right? To go through your life with a fine-tooth comb. That's also useful. Having a conceptual understanding of the patterns you fall into 
understanding the way, say, certain relationships are not healthy for you, right? You've got people in your life who are reliably producing negative experiences for you, for instance. Having some global understanding of all that, that can be very important. And in the face of those kind of structural problems, mindfulness is not the only tool you need, right? Sometimes you just need a new understanding of what you want in life and and where you want to head, right? And who can help you get there and who's an impediment to that process. And changing the framework in which you view your life can close the door to certain types of suffering that will just keep coming until you change that framing. So the power of a new conceptual understanding of your own psychological suffering really shouldn't be underestimated. Now that said, I'm very skeptical of the insights and epiphanies many people claim to have about how their childhood has produced the suffering they now experience as adults. Right? I don't think there's a ton you need to understand about your deep past. It's not to say that it could never be useful, but what is far more useful, in my view, is understanding what is happening now in your life and making incremental changes that will produce greater well-being today and tomorrow and the next day. Really straightening out how you spend your time and attention going forward. That's the path to happiness. Not endlessly ruminating about what happened to you when you were a kid. If there's a way to recover from a bad childhood, it is not a matter of spending a tremendous amount of time thinking about your bad childhood. Now again, I'm not a clinical psychologist, but like everyone else, I have things in my past that did not make me happy. And it's become pretty clear to me that the path forward always runs through the present moment. You have to straighten yourself out now. You need good relationships and a serious commitment to ethics and rewarding experiences and free attention now. Once again, an analogy to physical health seems apt. What we're talking about here is mental health. How do you think about achieving physical health? Is it a matter of really understanding how you came to be 100 pounds overweight and diabetic? Or is it a matter of making the changes you need to make now to reverse those processes? There's no conversation to be had about your childhood when it comes time to reverse a disease process or to get in shape, right? You just have to make the changes now. And again, it's not just one thing that will do that. And, and it can't all be done at once. Almost anything worth doing admits of incremental change, like getting in shape or learning a new discipline or improving a relationship. It's drop by drop that these things are accomplished. And having a, a good understanding of the dynamics of any situation, having a map that actually fits the territory, understanding what the consequences of certain actions are in your life, that's indispensable. It sounds like that's what Peterson is focused on. But being able to let go of the past 
right now. That is a superpower. And that's where meditation and mindfulness comes in. Is scientific consensus a sufficient grounds for belief for lay people without the time or education to fully investigate a matter for themselves? For example, climate change is overwhelmingly attested to by scientists, with increasing consensus among those who specialize in climate study. Does the rigorous nature of scientific consensus itself justify belief? Well, as a general matter, yes. Of course, with the caveat that scientific consensus can change at any time, and that it's possible for a majority of people to be wrong, right? So there are breakthroughs that are genuine breakthroughs, right? They overturn an established consensus. But for provisional belief, right? Belief that nonetheless is worth betting on, of course, none of us have the time or the expertise to vet every scientific claim for ourselves. You could never even get started with such a project. So, of course, in any field, if a majority of the scientists say that something seems to be the case, well, then it makes sense to generally accept that until things prove otherwise. You just have to be guided by the best information you can get. The alternative is misinformation and wishful thinking and conspiracy theories. And, and there are areas in science where the consensus is so strong and so aloof from any possible conflicts of interest that there, there really is no basis to doubt specific claims. And elsewhere, you can see the vested interests competing, right? You can see the financial incentives. Of course, it makes sense to be a little skeptical of a climate change study funded by the petroleum industry, right? And understanding cognitive bias is part of the toolkit that we all need in hand now to vet claims of these kinds. But generally speaking, provided we keep in mind how provisional so much of science is, there is no alternative but to be guided to one or another degree by scientific consensus. Do you see any downside to your association with the intellectual dark web? Yeah, I think I probably do. That's why I've always taken it as fairly tongue-in-cheek uh, and not made much of it. You know, many of the people who are lumped into this group are people who I like and am happy to collaborate with. But as to whether the concept of this group is an advantage for any of us, I remain fairly agnostic, right? I'm happy to play with the idea. I don't tell Eric Weinstein to shut up when he uses the phrase, but I haven't been inclined to make much of it myself. What are your thoughts on the morality of football, given its connection to CTE, chronic traumatic encephalopathy, so brain damage in football? I think football is ethically problematic. Uh, I'm not a huge football fan, so it's not much of an impediment for me to realize that. I'm not spending hours enjoying football and then having to wrestle with the, the ethics there. It seems to me pretty straightforward that as a parent, I wouldn't want my child to play tackle football. Yeah, I, I think the future of football is probably in jeopardy the more we learn about the effects on the brain. As far as I understand, 
it is the worst of the worst in terms of the prevalence of brain damage that professionals experience. Uh, it's even worse than boxing, as far as I understand, and certainly worse than MMA. But this is a problem in other sports. In soccer, heading the ball is just objectively a bad idea. I played soccer growing up and now regret every time I touch the ball with my head. It never felt right. You'd get this rusty, metallic taste in your mouth. Who would have thought slamming your brain against the inside of your skull was bad for you? Anyway, viewing it through the eyes of a parent changes one's priorities here. What do you think of the suggestion by Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez for a marginal tax of 70% on earned income above $10 million a year? Well, I don't know what the specific number should be. I think taxing the wealthy more makes sense. But again, it's not just a matter of getting revenue. It's a matter of incentivizing and disincentivizing things in society, right? So generally speaking, I think we should tax what we want less of, right? So the, the idea of taxing people's profits, while some of it might be inevitable, it seems to me not to be playing the incentive game especially wisely. So I think we should have a carbon tax. I think we should transition to a carbon-neutral economy. How do we do that? Well, I think the tax code should be used to help. But generally speaking, I think the status quo, the fact that, as Warren Buffett famously said, that he pays a smaller percentage in taxes than his secretary does, that makes no sense. Your former podcast guest, Christian Picciolini, recently called you a gateway drug to white supremacy and claimed that you mask your true intentions behind, quote, pseudo-philosophy, race realism, misogyny, and skepticism. How do you determine when it's a good idea to respond to these kinds of charges and which people are better left ignored? Do you worry that leaving these kinds of accusations unaddressed may damage your reputation for those less familiar with your work? Yeah, well, on the latter point, uh, yes, there's no question that it does. But there's just no time to even notice, much less respond to these kinds of things. And this is just incessant. And the only reason why I know about this is because you posed the question. But yeah, if that's out there and it's landing with, in this case, Christian's audience, there's no question it's harming my reputation among people who don't know enough about me to know how absurd those charges are. But for the most part, I, I don't respond to these kinds of things anymore. If it happened on the front page of the New York Times, I might feel I have to. Or if I just happen to notice it in a moment where it's just too tempting to respond on Twitter, I might impulsively respond, but there's just way too much for me to, to counter. You said that society would be better off if we recognize that we don't have free will. What positive effects on society do you think there'd be if people realize that the self is an illusion? Interesting question. Well, it is really the flip side of the free will question. So many of the same ethical and ultimately judicial benefits would follow. But recognizing the illusoriness of the self is really more about an individual's psychological health, right? I think it's just good psychologically. It mitigates psychological suffering for anyone who can accomplish it. 
That's not to say that there aren't pathological conditions that seem to have something to do with losing one's sense of self. You know, there's depersonalization syndrome. That's not what is happening when one is learning how to meditate. So the the terminology here can be somewhat misleading. But it's just about being happier in the end and suffering less and being less disposed to act out on the basis of one's negative emotions. So society definitely would be improved, I think, the more people had this epiphany, but it's not the same, doesn't have the same ideological implications that are easy to communicate. But again, it is of a piece with the realization that free will is an illusion. Have you ever had anti-Semitism directed at you? If so, how did it make you feel? given your, at best, ambivalence toward Judaism as a cultural identity. Well, frankly, I can't remember if I ever have experienced it face-to-face. That may have happened at some point, but that really is a distant memory, if it's a memory at all. I now experience a fair amount of it online, and it means absolutely nothing to me. It's just a sign of a social pathology that exists out there, but as an attack on me, it has no psychological force at all. It's the equivalent of a jihadist or Islamist calling me an unbeliever, right, or a blasphemer. I don't acknowledge the terms or the logic of the criticism. These people are just announcing their idiocy to me. So, yeah, it has zero content, but I see it fairly frequently online now. Under the influence of certain psychedelics, people regularly report, quote, receiving messages from entities, plants, or spirits. Terence McKenna often talked about what he called the voice of the mushroom that would actually speak to him. Traditionally, ayahuasca users in the Amazon talk about receiving teachings from plant spirits that actually take the form of a voice in their head. Rick Strassman's book about DMT, titled The Spirit Molecule, details what subjects describe as, quote, interactions with entities. What is your take on all this? Well, frankly, I don't know. This is a sort of psychedelic experience that I haven't had. I'm actually tempted to take DMT for this, among other reasons. And while I've taken mushrooms, I've never had this experience. So I can't talk about how compelling or not compelling it seems to me firsthand, because I just, I have never felt myself in relationship to another source of intelligence while on any psychedelic. Standing outside the experience, I would say that the only thing that would make me think that these relationships are in some way real, which is to say the only thing that would constitute evidence that a person is actually in dialogue with another form of intelligence, would be something that these intelligent entities could say that could be confirmed, right? What information do they have? Uh, And I'm not aware of an example where they say something prescient or otherwise falsifiable. And this actually links up with what I said about Terence McKenna earlier, the cockamamie idea he got that became his time wave theory. I believe he got in dialogue with the voice of the mushroom, you know, at least on that front. It proved unreliable. What are your thoughts on the problem of cultural appropriation? 
Well, I, I think I just reject the concept. I mean, what is cultural appropriation, and why is it bad? Right. I, I understand if there's a a use of a culture or or of one of its products that seems disparaging. Right. I can understand why Native Americans are not especially enthusiastic about having sports teams named things like the Redskins or having a feather-clad Indian as a mascot, right? So if, if you mean that form of appropriation, well, I grant that some of that can be in bad taste and can be offensive and people's complaints should be heard. But most so-called appropriation is coming out of a genuine fondness and enthusiasm for another culture. You know, a woman who wants to dress up in a sari, who doesn't happen to be Indian, probably wants to do that because she thinks saris are incredibly cool. And so it is with so many other forms of this. Cultures interpenetrate. Cultures export and import ideas and customs. This is what we want to have happen. So the general complaint here strikes me as paranoid and petty and leading in a direction we don't want to go. Every one of these subcultures should hope that their coolest and most interesting memes get exported to the rest of the world. If ever there were an unnecessary form of suffering, surely this is it. But again, I'm carving out this one space where the reference to another culture can seem patently demeaning or disparaging. It's easy to see how people would be annoyed by that. Okay. How do you think about regret? If free will is an illusion, then you cannot or should not feel regret towards something you didn't choose or did badly. I can understand this conceptually, but this doesn't eliminate feeling bad about past choices and their consequences. Yeah, well, this is an interesting question, and uh, there's no doubt that regret is a major variable in human psychology and in, and in our capacity for suffering over the past. And it's also a major variable in decision-making. The anticipation of regret is something that gets priced in to decisions, which causes us to depart from what would seem a strictly rational calculus. So regret and its anticipation are huge factors in the kinds of choices we make and in, and in our retrospective judgments of whether our lives have been good. As you might imagine, I don't think we should spend a lot of time regretting the choices we've made in the past. I think we should register regret, which is to say, I think we should learn from our mistakes, right? That's a good thing. But to spend time brooding over how things went, that's an illusion. What you're doing is suffering pointlessly in the present under the shadow of certain memories. You're telling yourself a story about something that might have been over and over again. How long do you want to do that for? This is a choice you can make, and mindfulness is the tool you would use to make that choice. So I think experiences of regret should be very punctate, right? They should pierce your model of what you're doing and what you should do in the future. The experience of regret should count for something, but I see no reason to dwell on it 
What you want to do is learn what you need to learn from it and then move forward. Learn from these mistakes and resolve to do better next time. And there's nothing about a resolution of that kind that is incompatible with the understanding that free will is an illusion. The kinds of goals we set and concepts we form and plans we make, all of this matters. With or without free will, there's a difference between having a map and knowing how to read it and not having one. Everything still matters. Everything still has its causal power. It's just there's no agent in the middle of it creating all this. There's a cascade of causation, whether deterministic or not. Determinism plus randomness still doesn't get you free will. And understanding that can make you much more forgiving of your past self and his or her failures. There's no question of that. You did in every past moment exactly what you were then capable of doing. So get over your regret and acquire new tools in the present. Okay, I think I'll leave it there. Thank you very much for your questions. Once again, I promise we're in the process of making the Ask Me Anything page better on my website. That will eventually happen. We just have many irons in the fire at the moment. But it is on our list. Thanks again, and I'll see you all soon on the podcast.